Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Welcome to everybody. Uh, So glad that you're here. So glad to see all the smiling faces. And of course, we are so very appreciative to to Jesus for showing up in this place this morning. Amen. I I don't ever want to go to church and just take God for granted. Can I hear an amen from somebody? I want to feel him. I want to know that I'm close to him and that I'm in his presence. And so we always want to make room in our worship services for Jesus to show up and and do something special. Um, And today I'm going to actually, there's something at the end of my message that's very special and very important. Uh, that we want to get to today, and and uh, I'm, I'm kind of excited about this message because I think that it, it's something that we all deal with and with, that we all struggle with, uh, and it's it's just it, it weighs on us. It, it's a heavy thing, and um, it, it keeps us from enjoying the life that God intended us to enjoy, and 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 being the kind of people that God intended for us to be. So I'm happy to talk about this this morning, and I hope that it blesses you this morning. But I wanted to start out my message with a question to introduce what we're going to talk about today, and that is very simply this, what can wash away my sin? What can wash away my sin? That's a big, big question, isn't it? For anybody that's lived any length of time, for anybody that's been on this planet, been in any relationships, uh, Anybody that's had a car, (laughs) uh, anybody that's had a job or a career, you've seen some things, you've felt some things, you've experienced some things, you've suffered through some things, you have done some things. We all wrestle with this. What can wash away my sin? And maybe you're here this morning and you're you know, not fully on, a full on a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're kind of trying to think through this, and, and it, it, it's uncomfortable to talk about this word. I mean, sin, it's just such a heavy word. It just kind of lands on us, and it stays there. And so maybe you're not all the way there as you kind of figure out your faith and, and your relationship with God. Maybe your word this morning or a word for you would be, what can wash away my, my guilt? What could wash away? What could take away my regret. And th- this word regret is actually really interesting to me. In Merriam-Webster's dictionary, when you look up regret, it actually says that regret is the mourning or the, mourning the loss or the death of something. Anybody ever mourned the loss or the death of something? Maybe it was the death or the loss of a relationship or the death or the loss of a dream or a career or you know, a piece of ourselves. And I know I'm, I'm giving you some wiggle room here this morning in talking about this. Um, but if I'm giving you uh, this, this wiggle room, you know, for a lot of us, it's a roadblock to, to following Jesus, or, you know, Christianity and, and, and that kind of stuff, being a Christian. It just feels so heavy, and we don't really want to talk about sin. That's an uncomfortable word, right? We kind of like to use other words. We'd prefer to use other words because it just feels so, so heavy. It judges us. It kind of waits on, weighs on us to, to admit that we have sin. But because I am giving you a little wiggle room and talking about guilt or regret this morning, I think it's worth pointing out that Jesus kind of linked up all of the ideas of sin and guilt and regret. And if regret is mourning the death of something, then one of Jesus' most famous followers said it this way, the wages of our sin is it's death. 
It's death. And we have all done some things that have killed some possibilities in, in our lives. We've all done some things that have left us with guilt and with regret and, and sometimes even with shame. And if you don't trust Jesus enough to take him at his word on some things, I can, I can just guarantee you, you will end up killing something in your life. You will end up with regret. I, I've seen it happen way more than it has to. So what can wash away my sin? What can wash away my guilt? What can wash away my regret? Now, if you grew up in a church context, this whole idea of, of sin, you know, that, that was part of even our childhood prayers, right? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my toys to break so my little brother can't have them. Right? No, you didn't. You weren't. That was me. It was just me. But, you know, we, 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 we know when we grow up in church, when we grow up in Sunday school, we know about asking Jesus to forgive our sins. We're taught that from a very young age, right? You need to ask Jesus to forgive you of all the bad stuff that you've done. But really, like, what have you done? I mean, you, you know, you took your brother's G.I. Joe. You, you went in your sister's room, and you knew you weren't supposed to go in your sister's room. And so, you know, I, I remember actually one time when I was in kindergarten, my mom uh, used to send me, she was one of those moms that sent me to school with a healthy snack. And so she sent me to kindergarten one day with an egg sandwich, which I'm sure made my backpack smell wonderful. Uh, and I got to kindergarten, and there was all the cubbies there where you put your snacks and your stuff. And I went to put my egg sandwich wrapped in tin foil into my cubby. And in the cubby right above mine, someone had a package of ho-hos. Come on, somebody. A package of ho-hos unopened right there in the cubby above mine. So you know what I did. You know what I did. I didn't know a package of ho-hos could fit in a five-year-old's back pocket, but I made it happen. And just because I was a good person, I put my egg sandwich in their cubby. And so then it came time for snack at kindergarten, and there was a little girl, and she's crying. We're all out on the playground. I'm eating my ho-hos, man. It's so good. And the teacher comes out with a little girl, and she's crying. The teacher says, who took, I don't even remember the girl's name now, who took little Katie's snack? And left an egg sandwich in her cubby. I'm like, mmm, you know, I got chocolate all over and everything. I don't know who it was. And I had to fess up, and then I had to ask Jesus to forgive me. So, you know, that's how it works. Take what you want, then ask Jesus to forgive you later. Let's all go home. Thank you. Drop an offering in the box on the way. <laughs> but we do. We all have things in life that, that they cause us shame, and they cause us guilt, and they leave us with regret, and unfortunately, as we turn into adults, these, these things here, they get bigger, right? And, and there's guilt associated with the things that we've done. There's shame attached to the ways that we used to behave and the way we used to treat people. There are seasons of our life, whole seasons, years of our life that we wish that we could erase and, and get a do-over. We hope nobody asks about our first marriage. Right? We interview for a job, and they say, well, you got to go through a background check, and we cringe because we know what's going to show up on the background check, things that you hope that the people you love will never bring up again, right? Like, come on, you don't, you don't got to say amen or nod your head. You can, you can, you can stay low-key, right? But there's that time 
when you took that, that trust you broke and the money you stole, that one night of bad judgment, that one night of impaired judgment, that one blow up where you said that thing and now every time you see him and every time you see her, there's just guilt, there's shame, there's stuff. We don't even really know how to categorize it if we're not Christians, right? What is it? But it's just stuff that hangs over us. What can wash away my sin? What can wash away my guilt? What can wash away, take away my regrets? And boy, we try lots of stuff to get rid of our guilt and our shame and our regrets, don't we? Some of us have tried drinking it away. Some of us have tried medicating it away. Some of us have buried ourselves in careers and jobs. Some of us have tried to give more money to charity. Some of us have tried to have more kids, right? If there's just something, there's just something that can make it all go away. If there was just something that could erase it from our record, something to make me forget it all, what can wash away my sin? And then here's another thing we do, right? We just, we, we throw ourselves into the sea of humanity. Well, nobody's perfect. Anybody ever said that before? Anybody ever thought that before, right? You wanted to say it, but nobody's perfect. And we don't want to admit that we have sins. We, we think since everybody has sins, well, it's just okay if I have sin. But we still don't want to call ourselves a sinner, even though we admit that everybody here is probably a sinner. Right? Yeah, we got a good amen on that one. Everybody here, I I guarantee you right now, if I was to ask in this room, and don't do it, don't raise your hand, if I was to ask everybody here, who here is a sinner? Let me tell you what would happen. Everybody in the back row would immediately sit up and start looking around. Everybody on the front row would go like this, right? Just kind of, we're not really sure. But then if I was to ask the same crowd, us here this morning, who here is perfect, who here has never sinned, none of us would want to raise our hands then either, would we? We know better than to say that. There are people on speed dial that could tell something different. You're sitting next to someone that could say something different. So nobody's perfect, and, and because nobody's perfect, well, then I'm fine. But we're not fine because it keeps popping back up. And when we remember and when it comes back, I mean, it's been years, but it still makes us cringe, doesn't it? And so we come up with excuses. You know, I was young. I was drunk. I was angry. I was lonely. I was hungry. I was sneezy, sleepy, dopey, grumpy. I was, we have been it all. We have excuses for everything that has happened. And all of these things might be true, but admitting that doesn't wash it away. Telling other people or coming to the place where we can confess that doesn't seem to take it all away. It doesn't cancel the debt that we feel to him or the debt that we feel like we owe her, the debt that we feel like we owe our kids or the people that we love. And there's just this cloud that follows us everywhere we go. And it's not every single minute, but it's just, it's always there. And just at random times, seemingly, it pops up and reminds us of things that we wish that we forget. And what we're looking for, what we wish we could find is really this word right here, forgiveness. Something that could just make it go away. Something that we could face it, you know, maybe if it can't go away. Maybe something that could allow us to face it, but be okay with it. Something that would allow us to kind of own it, but not in a shameful way. Own it in a grateful way. 
that it's part of our past, but you know, we're, we're trying to get to that place where if we ever see him or see her again, if we ever end up in that circumstance again, if I ever have to explain what went wrong to my kids someday, you know, if I ever feel the need to apologize, the next time that I'm triggered to think about this, is there a way to so forgive myself that I can actually own what has been forgiven, where we don't have to be bothered by that anymore, where we can get rid of the guilt Get rid of the shame and the regret. Or one way we deal with this, another way that we deal with this, rather, is so that we can move forward. Is we turn, we think of all this in terms of debt, don't we? We owe it to ourselves to be better than that. We owe it to ourselves to move past that. We try and negotiate with our guilt. We think, well, if I can do this, well, then that should make up for that. If I can just get through this or give this or be there for them for this period, well, then maybe that will counterbalance everything that I did before. And then I will have paid my debt for leaving. I will have paid my debt for hurting, for using. When I think of how I treated my kids, how I worked too much, or let my marriage problem, problems pile up, or I, I never should have said that, or I should have said this, I owed it to them to be faithful, I owed it to them to be more present. I was a better person than that. I'm a better mate than that. And it's not even that we owe it all to them, right? Sometimes we think we owe it to ourselves. I owed it to myself, my self-respect. But if I could somehow forgive my own debt, if there was a way I could pay my own debt, but there's not. It doesn't seem to be. And then there's this thing we've talked about at City Grace before. You know, we, we kind of like to call these things that we've done our mistakes, right? We don't say, well, I sinned those years ago. What we say is, I made some mistakes. Anybody ever, you don't have to raise your hand. Anybody ever said that? Well, I was young and I made some mistakes. But here's the thing about mistakes. Mistakes are usually the result of incomplete knowledge. The problem is we knew exactly what we were doing. See, a mistake is something that we make once or maybe twice, but this was something that we did for years. These mistakes with friendships and with family, mistakes with trust or handling money or credit cards, mistakes with alcohol or drugs. Can, and we made these mistakes on purpose. Can you make a mistake on purpose? Can you have a premeditated mistake? But some of those things that we're ashamed of, some of those things that we can't get rid of, we planned to do them. What do you call someone who plans to do a mistake? What do you call someone who made the same mistake for two whole years of their life? And see, when we make a mistake, what you do with a mistake is you get out an eraser and you erase it. But we can't seem to erase this. We can't seem to get rid of of this. And what if we're not just mistakers? What if it's something deeper than that? What if it's the other word? What if, in fact, we have to admit to ourselves that, you know what, there is something in me that's seriously broken and needs redemption? But man, if we're looking for something to wash away our sin, if we're looking for something to wash away our regrets, and if we decide that this is something bigger than a mistake, well, now the problem gets bigger, right? Now the issue gets more complicated. Now I don't just need an eraser. I need to be a different kind of person altogether because I know me. And I know that if I'm left to my own wants and my own fancies that I'm going to go and make the same mistakes again. Maybe it's not mistake. Maybe there's something deeper there, right? What can wash 
away my sin. What can wash away not just what I did, but what I want to do going forward? Mm. That's tough. That's tough. And the thing is, the answer is not simple. The, the answer is not like what we maybe found when we were kids. This is a grown man. This is a grown woman problem. This is going to take a little awkwardness. It's going to take us coming to a point where we kind of face who we've been and face who we want to be in the future. This is going to take us maybe even owning up to some broken tendencies in ourselves, some selfishness within someone, you know, within ourselves. This isn't some, you know, I stole somebody's ho-ho in kindergarten. This is deep, and we've hurt people, and there's shame, and there are wounds. This is, I was addicted to pornography, and it damaged my marriage. This is, I tried to quit using, and I never could give it up, and I ended up destroying my family, or ruining my family's financial future. This is something that I did to the people that I love emotionally, this is something that I did to the people that I love even verbally or physically. This is I took that. This is I stole that. I used that. And I couldn't quit thinking about that. What can wash away my sin? What can wash away these things inside of me that need to be changed? Now, here's the thing. In the history of mankind, there has only ever been one person who stepped forward and said, I don't have a solution for you. I am the solution for you. In all of human history, this is a uniquely Christian idea that in the Christian faith, we cannot do anything to earn our forgiveness. What we need for our forgiveness has already been done. In Christianity, you can't do anything to wash away your sins. You can't give enough. You can't make up enough time. You can't be there enough. You can't restore or compliment or verbally affirm somebody enough. You can't do anything. The penalty for our wrongs has already been paid for by Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that we can add to what he has already done because he doesn't just have a solution for us to try for ourselves, but he claims to be the solution for who we were, to be the solution for where we find ourselves now, and to be the solution for us to move forward. See, we can walk away from the cross. We can walk away from an altar, from a moment, from a prayer, knowing that our forgiveness has been purchased by Jesus Christ. And he steps onto history's stage, and he says, I am the solution for your sin. I am the solution for your guilt and your regret. I am the solution for your future. But you have to accept me. You have to take me at my word, not just my teachings, but you have to accept and believe in who I claim to be. And see, Jesus, we miss this a lot of times. Jesus always linked following him to the claims of who he said he was. Because if he was just a good man, a good man can't do enough to forgive all the rest of humanity. He had to be something more than just a good man. 
And so when we look at Jesus and Christianity, this is why the resurrection is so important. This is why Easter is so important. Because if somebody could predict their own death and their resurrection and then pull it off, let's just go with what he says. Like if he can get back up on the third day, then there must be something more to Jesus than just good moral teaching. In his whole life, in his whole public career, he claimed to uniquely be the son of God, which means that Jesus was either a crazy person or Jesus was a liar or Jesus was somebody that we should pay attention to. And he steps forward and he says, because of who I am, I am the solution to your sins and I can take away your guilt. I can take away your shame. I can and only I can erase your past in me and through me. Every time you're confronted with your sin, every time that memory pops into your brain, you can be happy knowing that it is dealt with, that you have received forgiveness, and that you are filled with the new kind of life that will lead you to become something that you tried and tried and tried to be but never could quite become on your own. Oh, come on, somebody. It's no wonder we call him Savior. It's no wonder we sing his praise. In the Bible, the letters and the documents in the Bible, they're, they're so well preserved through history and archaeology. It's really, it's, it's amazing. And uh, the copies of this, I mean, way back before they had copy machines, before you know, anybody could you know, put quantity five and print off a Bible, Right, These hand-copied copies of the Bible just were distributed all over the world. And when we found them later in archaeology and in history in the, the 20s and the 1800s and the 40s and all this, when we got to cross-checking all of these things, we, like I'm some kind of archaeologist, but hey, I'll go with it. When we found these things, it was dry and dusty that day, it was hot, but I did the Lord's work, found these manuscripts, I'm just kidding. We found these manuscripts. When we got to cross-checking them, they all matched up, and it was pretty amazing, actually, almost like there's something supernatural to this book, right? And, and when, we, when we began to cross-check all of those things, and historians and archaeologists began to cross-check all of these things, we see the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus preserved in a very incredible way. And there was a man who's a follower of Jesus, and his name was John, and it's, it's in the new part of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John wrote about another person named John. Now, this gets super confusing. People during Bible times were just not very creative with names. People nowadays, nowadays, man, people come up with all kinds of crazy names. My middle name is Enoch. Yes. I forgive you, Dad. I forgive you. But John wrote about Jesus, and he wrote about this other man named John. And, and, and John, the, the one that was written about, he set all of the region of Jerusalem kind of on, its, on, on edge, on its ear. And, and he actually came a little bit before Jesus because he was, going, he was announcing that Jesus was on the way. And he was actually called John the Baptist. And when it's John the Baptist, it's not because he wasn't John the Presbyterian or John the Pentecostal. It was John the Baptist because he actually used to baptize people. And in those days, when people were converting to Judaism, the, the person that was converting would actually go through this ceremony where they would wash themselves. They would baptize themselves. But nobody had ever seen somebody else do the baptizing. And so when they saw, Jew, or when they saw John 
when the Jews saw John baptizing other people, they said, well, look at that. We've never seen that before. You're John the baptizer or John the Baptist, as you may know him. But for them, it was a symbol of someone converting to a whole new way of faith. Someone converting to a whole new religion, and this was new, and this was different. So when John the Baptist comes along, he tells everybody, hey, all of you Jewish people that have been waiting on God's rescue, all of you Jewish people that have been waiting on God's special prophet, God's special preacher that's going to come and show the world how to get rid of all their sins and get rid of all their regrets and get rid of all their shame. He is coming. And and then whoever would believe John's message, and a lot of them did, they were baptized as as a symbol. Number one, that they believed the message. And number two, that they were actually taking part in the message. And they wanted forgiveness for their sins. And Mark actually tells about it. Before we get to John's writing, Mark actually tells us that the whole Judean countryside and like all the people of Jerusalem went out to see this guy named John. There were thousands upon thousands of people that left Jerusalem and went to where John was. And it wasn't just like a quick, you know, 30-minute drive over, right? If you were to, you know, as the crow flies, it was about a 20-mile journey. But by road and by trail, like they had to go, it was about a, close to a 40-mile trip. It was something that they would leave at sunrise, and they wouldn't get there till sunset. And still, in spite of all the difficulties, thousands upon thousands of people went to hear John preaching out there. And four different authors of these 2,000-year-old documents that we have that tell us about Jesus and tell us about John the baptizer. Even Josephus, a, a Jewish historian, he talks about John the Baptist. This, this really happened. This isn't like once upon a time. This actually happened. John the Baptist was in history, and thousands and thousands come to see and and hear and to be baptized by John, and he looks crazy, and he's wearing camel skin, or or rather, yeah, camel skins, and eating locusts and honey, and and, and his message was just so compelling that he drew large crowds, and and, and, you know, he starts such this, this, this such huge gathering that the religious people are like, hey, more people are showing up for his church than they are for our church. So let's go find out what's going on. And so they come up to John and they say, hey, who are you, John? Are you one of the old prophets? He's like, no, I'm not one of them. Well, then are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been waiting for, the rescuer king? Are you the Messiah? And, and the city's empty and you must be somebody. Who are you? And John answers them. John the Baptist answers them. And John chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, John says, I baptize with water, but among you, they probably start looking around, right, looking over their shoulder, but among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me in the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John's saying, you think I'm great. You think I am drawing big crowds. You like the words that I'm saying and how that I'm announcing to everybody that God's new kingdom is breaking into the world, that freedom from oppression and freedom from your past and the erasing of of guilt and shame and regret and sin, if you like all of that, you just wait till he shows up. And then John's message, it wasn't light and fluffy. Like He was telling these people, like, repent. He's pointing a finger in their face. He's telling them, you're horrible people. Quit being horrible people. And they just couldn't get enough of it. They loved it. It's kind of like some of us, right? When you go to church and you feel guilty, you feel like you were closer to God in that service, don't we? 
How was church? It was great. They made me feel terrible. Then they made me feel good again at the end. The church was awesome. And then, you know, you don't do anything once you leave. But hey, church was great. Ouch, that one hurt. I take that one out the notes for the next time. But John is telling everybody, you need to change your ways. The king is coming. The king is here. He's right here, maybe even in the crowd. And he starts naming people's sins. Starts telling some of the people what they need to do to get right with the king before he shows up. And the next day, after they come in the question, the very next day, John's baptizing people, thousands of people around. There's a line down into the water. The kids are playing downstream because there's no chlorine. You know, they put them downstream from everybody else. Thousands of people, and John's baptizing them, dunking them one after. They've never seen this before. It's amazing. And all of a sudden, John stops everything, and he tells everybody, look. In the old King James Version is, behold, look. Everybody stop. Everybody freeze. Everybody turn. Everybody that's looking at me and everybody that's been watching what's going on, stop looking at me. Everybody look. And everybody turns. They look, and John says, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. Everybody starts looking around for a sheep. John's like, you're so, so literal, right? Uh, No, the Lamb of God. And for us, we probably really would be looking for a sheep because we weren't Jewish. But for them, this meant something. For them, for 1,479 years, for almost 1,500 years by this point, this culture had been sacrificing lambs. And the reason they had been doing it was for their sins. It was to try and deal with their guilt. It was to try and push ahead their regret so I don't got to think about it for another 12 months. Let me take this lamb and kill it and offer it kind of as a substitute in my place for 1,500 years. What they had been sacrificing at the temple was a symbol that they could never quite get rid of their past. They could never quite get rid of their shame and their regrets and the things that they had killed and the opportunities that they had just you know, made dead. And now they were mourning the loss of something, mourning the death of something because of their sins. But they're smart people. Those people weren't dumb. They knew, like, man, an animal for a life, an animal for a human life, it's not equal. It, it doesn't really work. But for 1,500 years, this was a system they had. It was like they were paying down the interest on a sin credit card, but never really touching the balance. We're chuckling because unfortunately we know exactly what I'm talking about, but their guilt still remained. They couldn't quite get rid of their sin, but it all goes back to the beginning of the story when Adam and Eve were in a perfect situation. We're in God's perfect peace and God's perfect presence and innocence and and purity. But then one day an enemy slips into their world and puts an idea into their hearts and their heads that questions God's goodness. They knew that God was good, but they listened to a lie. They listened to a story about what God was and his kindness and how he loved them and how he had provided for them. All around them was evidence of God's goodness, but they believed a lie. And they stopped trusting God 
Five minutes alone with the enemy and they questioned God's character and they believed the lie that God was lying to them. And in spite of their experiences, they fall away from God. They turn their back, walk away from God and start a cycle and a lifetime of sin. And we can dog Adam and Eve all we want for doing this and for distrusting God and walking away, but we've pretty much done the same thing, haven't we? God has given us the keys for life and love and happiness, but we just insist on doing life our own way, don't we? We insist on doing our own things. God tells us, don't do that. Don't say that. Don't don't treat them like that. I'm telling you, it will leave you with regret. It will leave you with guilt and with remorse, and we just kind of tune God out. We did our own mistakes anyway. We break trust, and we break relationships, and we hurt the people that we love the most. And see, sin is not some ancient list of thou shalt's and thou shalt not. Sin is you and me choosing to live with others governed by our own selfishness. Sin is us hurting others so that we can get ahead. Rejecting God is good, but because we're not perfect, we mess things up, and we have hurt others, and we've left scars and left trails of regret, not just to the people, but to our maker. And then God looks at Adam and Eve, and he says, well, now you're broken. You're broken on the inside, and it's bleeding all over on the outside. You are stained by your wrong, and you need something to cover the evidence the remembrance of your wrong. And Adam and Eve try and cover it themselves. They take fig leaves and try and cover themselves. But God says that's not good enough. And God makes them coats out of animal skins to cover what they had done. Now, where did God get the animal skins? From an animal. He killed. It's not a mystery. It's not a multiple choice even. There's only one answer. Like, that's it. He didn't happen to have a bear rug up in heaven that he wasn't using. It just He got the animal skins from a dead animal. And so death entered the world because humans needed a covering for the stain of what they had done. A stain that they could not get rid of with their own covering. And so right from like the second or third page of the Bible story, an innocent life is sacrificed so that people didn't have to live with the constant reminder of their shame. And for 1,479 years, these Jewish people had been killing animals to cover up their guilt and their sins until one day John stopped all of the baptizing and turned and pointed at a man that was standing on the bank of the river. And he said, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. I love this this, this phrase in in the Greek, takes away. It means to lift up. And to carry away. Like there's weight to it. Like it's not something you could just drag away. It has to be lifted up and carried off. Behold the Lamb of God who lifts the weight of what you have done. Who lifts the weight of our guilt. 
who lifts up the weight that has bowed us down and makes it hard for us to make eye contact with him. He lifts up the weight of our past and he carries it off. God has provided a lamb. God has provided a covering. God has provided a solution for our shame and a solution for our regrets. The sin of the whole world is lifted up. It's carried off by the perfect lamb that God has provided. Jewish sin. American sin. Mexican-American sin. Old sins. New sins. Deep sins, light sins, your sin, my sin. Behold, look, the Lamb of God that picks up and carries off the sin of the whole world. The whole world. And then Jesus has this ministry, and all throughout his ministry and his public career, he'd drop these hints, you know, and it wasn't just about good moral teaching. It wasn't just about doing cool tricks. Jesus would say things like, hey, you need to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And the crowd is like, what? We don't get that. He almost lost the crowd that day. It's another time a bunch of people are around, and Jesus says, hey, one day very soon I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be killed. And they're like, no, Jesus, everybody loves you. You feed everybody. You heal everybody. There's no way that you are going to be arrested and killed. And then the last night that they're actually together, it's, it's recorded they were there to celebrate the final Passover. And there's a lot of meaning in that. It was, it was again, for the Jewish people, had so much depth and richness. It was, it was the time when they remembered when they as a people were enslaved to Egypt. And God was bringing the hand of judgment on the things that had enslaved them. And to escape the judgment so that the judgment could pass over them, they had to take a lamb and sacrifice a lamb and paint its blood over their doorposts. It just seems so strange. It just seems so silly. We don't really get it, but okay, you're God and we're not, so we're just going to do what you say. And that night, they put the lamb's blood on their doorposts and the judgment on what had enslaved them passed over their house. And when they got up the next day, they were free. Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples, and he's saying, from now on, when you celebrate the Passover, don't do it for that little lamb from 1,500 years ago. Now, when you celebrate Passover, you do it because of me. Because I'm not just going to set free Jewish people. I'm going to set free everybody. The lamb of God that lifts up and carries off the sins of the world. And at that point, I think the disciples were thinking, man, doesn't Jesus say the strangest things? But he can heal, so I'm sticking with him. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. I'm sticking with him. He says he's going to do the same thing for himself. And that night, Jesus was arrested. And all those brave disciples ran away, and they lost faith in who Jesus said he was. And Jesus was taken, and he was beaten, and he was whipped. And he bled as they whipped his back. And then Jesus had a rough wooden cross full of splinters and had thorns placed on his brow. And, and the cross was thrown across the raw open wound in his back. 
Jesus was forced to carry those heavy and crude wooden beams up a hill until he couldn't do it anymore. And as Jesus walked up the hill with the cross, he bled along the way and his blood was running from his body. And then they got to the top of the hill, a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. You can actually Google it. It's still there. You can see how this hillside actually looks like a human skull. And they threw Jesus on top, of the gr- on top of the cross as it lay on the ground. And they hammered crude spikes through his hands and through his feet. And he bled. And he bled. And his blood was spilled. And then they lifted the cross upright. And they dropped the cross into the ground with a jolt. And his back dragged across those splinters. And the, his head with the crown of thorns bumped against the wood and the spikes tore through the flesh of his hands and his feet. And Jesus bled. Jesus bled. And then John tells us something. Actually, all four of the gospel writers tell us something that would, it would be insignificant if it wasn't for what John the Baptist had said at the beginning. Look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. The four gospels all record one very interesting fact. That when Jesus died, he did not die from suffocation. Crucifixion was supposed to suffocate people to death. They would hang there, slouched down, unable to lift themselves up and get a breath. And then their lungs would fill with fluid until they could not breathe anymore. It was a cruel and a crude instrument of torture. But when they came to Jesus, and what they would do, the Roman soldiers, if they weren't dying quick enough, what the Roman soldiers would do is come by after a while and break their legs with a club so that then the people on the cross could no longer lift themselves up to get a breath. But when they came to Jesus to break his legs, they found out that Jesus had already died, that Jesus actually died from bleeding out and not from suffocation. He died because he had bled from the beating. He had bled from the whipping. He had bled from the wooden cross, scraping across his back. The agony and the blood of the night before his crucifixion, the nails in his hands and his feet. Look, the Lamb of God who lifts up and takes away the sins of the whole world. The covering provided by God, the unique one who came from the very heart of the Father, who lifts up and carries away the sin, the guilt, the regrets of the whole world. The whole world. What can wash away my sin? What can wash away my sin? What could make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Can we pause? Can we give him praise and thanks this morning? Come on, I feel the presence of the Lord in this room. What can wash away my sin? You can't. I can't. We've tried. Alcohol made you forget about it for a while. Other things maybe distracted you for a while, but When you came down or when you came home, there it was again. And Some things can make you feel better for a while, but really what can pick up and carry off the weight of your sin? Your sin. Some 20 years after the crucifixion of Jesus 
One of Jesus' most famous followers named Paul wrote to a church in, in a city called Colossae. And listen to his words about what Jesus had done. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13, he talks about Jesus. He forgave us all our sins. All of our sins. You know those things that you think may be unforgivable? The things that make you wonder if you can ever really come to God? The things that make you wonder if going to an altar or lifting a hand or saying a prayer is ever really going to work for you? Paul would say, yes, he has forgiven all of our sins. He goes on, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. There's that word again. The debt, that thing that we thought we owed ourselves, the thing that we owe our family and our kids, the thing that we owe our first relationship or maybe even our second relationship, the things that we owe that we can't seem to pay for ourselves. He has canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us. Oh, come on, somebody. It's condemned us for years. We haven't been able to get away from it for years, but he has canceled it. He took it away, and he nailed it to the cross. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the one who came from the Father to show us the love of the Father, to put us back together with the love. Mm, He's taking it away, nailing it to the cross. And listen, if you're here this morning, I have some great news for you. If you're here this morning, you don't have to forgive yourself because yourself has already been forgiven. You don't have to forgive yourself anymore. He's already covered your sin. He's already taken care of your shame and your guilt. He wants to remove the regrets from your mind and your heart. He wants to give you a brand new lease on life, and you tried finding it on your own. Tried finding it on our own, but we never, never really could. What can wash away our sin? Nothing. Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus, of Jesus, of Jesus. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.